Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of James Talks. Really great to have you all back with me again today. Um, I'm really excited today because I've got a, um, a guest with me who I've wanted to have on for a while. Um, didn't think I'd get on, but um, we've been connecting on Twitter for a while. Um, Brandon Robertson, um, and um, he is a writer and a speaker, and um, he's written in all sorts of places, um, Huffington Post and Time Magazine and lots of other places and he's just written a book as well and um yeah so we're going to be talking to him today so welcome brandon thanks so much it's so good to be with you um yeah great um so just tell us a bit about 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 you um yeah your background what you do and your story yeah um basically i right now i'm a what i would consider a progressive evangelical uh, writer and I've always wanted to be an evangelical writer and pastor, but in the past two or three years, um, I've stumbled into the world of being an LGBT activist, which was something I never thought I'd be doing, uh, never really wanted to do, uh, but uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to do it right now. Um, But yeah, the long, short story is that I grew up in a non-religious home um, right outside of Washington, D.C., and... um, just had a lot of experiences with an abusive alcoholic father. and um, Mm. I grew up in a low-income community, lived in a trailer park. um, And the combination of all of that growing up brought me to a point of really uh, despair. By the time I was 12 years old, I was suicidal, uh, really mentally broken down. And um, right around that same time, about five trailers up from us, there was this really weird religious family who wore long dresses and were homeschooled and went to church three or four times a week. And I became best friends with their daughters. And like good Christians, they invited me to come to church with them. <laughs> and so at 12 years old, I started attending a, a large fundamentalist Baptist church right outside of Baltimore, Maryland. And um, it was in the context of that church even with all of the really rigid kind of hellfire and brimstone preaching, um, I heard a message about a God who could love me better than my father was loving me, um, Mm. a God who cared for me and actually had a plan to redeem me from the circumstances that I was living in. And so I had this very radical, transformative experience with Christ um, at 12 years old. And really jumped headfirst into Christianity. Uh, Within about four months, I felt a strong calling from God to become a pastor. And so from 12 onward, I was, um, Mm. I started a blog, I was writing and self-publishing books, I was preaching at churches, I did street preaching um, all the way through high school. And so I was just really wanting to give my life to spread this gospel that was good news for my young soul. Um, And over the course of Middle school and high school, I had a couple bumpy experiences because being in a non-Christian home, I got to explore faith without any boundaries to begin with. Mm. And I became a Calvinist, of all things. Um, wow. I discovered, yeah, I discovered a crazy guy named Mark Driscoll on Twitter. Um, was <laughs> right. a big, he's a big deal, was a big deal here was in the United States. Yeah, yeah. And he made me a Calvinist. I really liked Mark because he... He was a fundamentalist, but he could drink and smoke and cuss and wear cool clothes. And he could do everything that I wanted to do as a young, angsty teenager. 
while still being a devoted follower of Christ. And um, so I got wrapped into that version of Calvinism. And my fundamentalist church actually kicked me out um, at age 16 because they were decidedly anti-Calvinist. And uh, and so I was going, at, I would be in the youth group, but I was talking to kids in the youth group about Calvinism and predestination. And the youth pastor thought I was a heretic and was telling some of the kids in the youth group that I was a heretic. And so eventually I was kind of forced to leave. Um, and that was a heartbreaking experience for me because for the first time, this mm. church, which had become this place of salvation, a new family for me, um, was rejecting me because of my honest and authentic search for God. I was only becoming a Calvinist because that's where my search led me. I wasn't doing it for um, bad reasons. It was This is how I was coming to understand God, and I was told that I could no longer be a part of the community. And that, that kind of experience has been repeated a lot throughout the rest of my journey. Um, I ended up leaving that church and going to a large evangelical megachurch. Uh, and at that church, I learned a lot more about grace. I learned about being a bridge builder um, because the pastor of this church in Maryland was uh, really committed to bringing together voices that disagreed and doing it very publicly. And so um, my pastor wrote a book and he had an endorsement from Brian McLaren on his book. And I remember picking up his book and running into my pastor's office one day and saying, Pastor, why do you have this heretic endorsing your book? What does this mean? Like, are you part of this emergent church movement? Mm -hmm. And my pastor looked at me and said, Brandon, God desires all of us to come together and to explore together and have humility as we converse with one another. And Brian is a good friend of mine. And yes, we disagree on almost everything, but we still both have a desire to follow God. And that conversation began to really pave a way for me to say, what would it look like if I spent the rest of my life engaging with people that saw things differently? Um, initially, my thought was in order to convert them to the right way of thinking. Uh, <laughs> now that's changed significantly. But uh, my pastor at that evangelical megachurch graduated from a school called Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And so once I graduated high school, I found it a natural trajectory to head to Moody, just like my pastor. Mm. And so um, in 2010, I went off and began my studies at Moody Bible Institute to get my bachelor's degree in theology. Uh, and it was in those four years that much of my book, Nomad, takes place in. Um, and it was those four years that, like most young people, were the most transformative years of my life. Because um, I went to Moody as a fundamentalist. I went to Moody as a conservative. And Moody is a very conservative school. But very quickly, I had this impulse to be a bridge builder. And so I started doing things like... I started a radio show on Moody's student radio network called The Bridge. And The Bridge was meant to expose the Moody community to voices that we disagreed with. And so I started interviewing really big people, surprised me. I was able to contact these people like N.T. Wright, Tony Campolo, and people that Moody considered to be heretics. And I began having conversations with them, and my radio show kind of blew up on the campus because 
no one ever thought uh, a little freshman in Bible college could have access to these people. And it turns out that most people will respond to you if you just send them an email. So that was a yeah. good lesson I learned there, too. It's true, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the final straw for me was um, at the end of the first semester of the radio show, I announced to the campus that I was going to interview Brian McLaren. Um, and I got an email within a few hours from the dean of students saying, your radio show is canceled and you need to come and meet with us because we don't know if you're theologically fit to be at Moody anymore. And again, in this moment, I was heartbroken because my theology had not changed. I was still a conservative fundamentalist, but I was just talking to people who I disagreed with. And I went in basically to a theological inquisition. They sat me down with the dean and a professor, and they fired questions at me about what I believed about heaven and hell and homosexuality and inerrancy. And, of course, I answered all of the questions correctly because I still was a conservative. But when I left the meeting, the last thing they told me was, I'm really, we're really not sure about your integrity, and we're going to be watching you closely, and if you make any mistakes, if you slip up, you're going to be done. And I walked out of that meeting again, really broken, because mm. I realized how evangelicalism had become the system that was supposedly stewarding the truth of the gospel, but actually was really afraid to engage with anybody who had any different perspectives. Mm. And so just to shorten up the story of it, the next three years flew by. I started a blog called Revangelical. Um, which meant rethinking, reforming, and renewing evangelical Christianity because I got really frustrated and I wanted to push evangelicals beyond this rigid, narrow boundary and sphere. And Moody called me in about four or five more times to the dean's office over the course of my three years. I got called into professor's offices and told that I was satanic and demonic and that I should get kicked out of Moody, but they couldn't prove that I was actually a heretic, so they couldn't kick me out. And yeah, it was, it was crazy. And in the midst of all of that, I began asking questions about my sexuality. Um, because I'd known for a while that I had attractions to both sexes. Um, and while I was at Moody, I became exposed to other Christians who would come out to me and say, Brandon, I struggle with same-sex attraction too. And so I began having these conversations with other Christians that had these same-sex attractions that I didn't think existed. I thought I was the only one, which is the case mm. for so many people. Um, mm. And and over those three and a half years after the radio show incident, I really also began to explore around Chicago a good bit, which this is one thing I always I, I started to say. Uh, Moody's whole system is really messed up because it's a conservative system that's trying to keep you boxed in, but it's in the dead center of one of America's biggest, most culturally diverse cities. And so mm. it doesn't do a really good job keeping you boxed in. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I said it, I did an interview earlier today where I said that Chicago, the city, was my biggest teacher during college. Right. Um, because I got out of the four walls of Moody and I went around and I experienced gay people for the first time. And I heard their stories about how the church had hurt them. And... I experienced Muslims and Mormons and everything in between, and I saw God working in all these different places. And I just really began to say, whatever the church is doing to the LGBT community, 
I don't know what I think about my own sexuality, but whatever the church is doing is wrong. It's hurtful. So I started writing about that. And of course, Moody got very scared. Um, I was called into another meeting and they basically urged me uh, to prove that I was authentically an evangelical and not going to become, literally they said, uh, they didn't want to see me become a rainbow flag waving person. So they said, we want you to go into a reparative therapy program called Healing Prayer. Um, a professor down the hallway does this. We really think that if you want to prove to us that you have good intentions, that you should go meet with her. So for my senior year, I met every week with a woman um, who I am pretty sure is uh, would consider herself an ex-lesbian um, or formerly same-sex attractive. She would pray with me and make me confess my sins to her and in hopes that my sexuality would be healed. And over the course of that entire year, I found a lot of healing. But by the time my senior year was over, though I found a lot of healing from trauma in my life and a lot of abuse that I had growing up, I found that my sexuality had only grown stronger. That as I became more whole as a person, I began to be able to understand this sexuality more. And, um, and so, by God's grace, I graduated from Moody, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was really dis disenchanted with evangelicalism and starting to ask some significant questions about my sexuality. And I moved back to Washington, D.C., and, uh, and yeah, I ended up getting offered a job as the national spokesperson of a new organization called Evangelicals for Marriage Equality. And I began working nationally pretty much overnight to... Um, cultivate conversations among conservative evangelicals about LGBT issues. And there's a lot more packed into what happened over that next year, but uh, I feel like I've been talking for a long time, so we can touch on that in a, in a bit. But, wow. Yeah. That is, <laughs> um, for, wow, 20 minutes, that's, <laughs> I feel like 20 yeah. minutes, but in a good way. Um, just a really long story packed into such a short time, that is... That's phenomenal, and you know, I mean, it seems like you've been like every every step along the way that you've been on this journey. You kind of you've been pushed. You've had people push you back. You've had people reject you. You've had you know, you've been told that whatever you believe or whoever you are isn't enough. Um, but you kind of keep coming back, um, and that's it's it's a kind of it's a it's a and that's a really, really amazing thing, you know, that there's a lot of grace in that story as well. And um, so let's just try and unpack that. Um, yeah. How did you begin to find a piece about who you are in terms of your reconciling your faith and your sexuality? Yeah. It wasn't easy. I don't think it's easy for anybody. Um, basically, after I got back to D.C., um, after Moody, and I was thrown into this national spotlight. It was pretty much overnight. Um, Time Magazine, Huffington Post, all these things were writing stories about me as one of these new evangelical leaders on LGBT issues. And the funny thing was, though I was this new national face, I still didn't know what I believed about sexuality and I still didn't consider myself LGBT. I was still closeted. And so, yeah, I was still closeted. Uh, and I was just really struggling to understand what to 
think about my own personal sexuality and as somebody who is being looked to to have all the answers to these questions about other people other christians who are struggling it was a lot of pressure very early on and um yeah i probably wasn't ready at that time to be that person to the world uh, to be an lgbt christian um and what ended up happening was actually um in about probably november of 2014 yeah 2014 um Huffington Post wanted to do an interview with me. And for the first time in that article, I got asked point blank if I was LGBT. And I felt like as somebody who was um, leading, becoming a leader in this movement, I needed to start trying to be honest. And so I told the Huffington Post reporter that I was questioning my sexuality and spent the next few months after that. uh, Well, first of all, once you say you're questioning your sexuality, most people draw the line and say, okay, so you're gay. Um, And so that happened. And I spent the next few months really going back and digging theologically very deep into what did I think God said? What what did God say about sexuality? And I discovered, um, I came to the place where I understood that the gospel of Jesus itself was a call to forward momentum. It was a call to move society move ourselves forward towards this thing Jesus called the kingdom of God and in that part of that was embracing everyone in all of our diversity Um, Mm. and understanding that if we believe that God is truly this eternally expansive creative being then wouldn't it make sense that all of humanity would be eternally expansive and creative wouldn't we be diverse Mm. and so that was really the route that came for me um, by January of 2015 I kind of came to this place internally where I really felt like the spirit of God had led me to the place where I could say I am LGBT um, and I need to be honest about that and I think the Bible is pro-LGBT if you read the trajectory of scripture correctly yeah Um, yeah absolutely and yet I still felt like I wanted to keep that in the closet for a while Um, and what ended up happening was Really quickly, um, I finished my book Nomad in February of 2015 and turned it into my former publisher, who was a conservative Pentecostal publisher. And they had been cheering my work for marriage equality on the whole way. Um, so I turned my manuscript in and I got an email that said, Brandon, your name has basically been blacklisted from Christian publishing um, or Christian book buyers in the United States. And so we're not sure that we can still publish your book. We need you to sign this statement that says you believe homosexuality is a sin or we don't think we can publish your book. And in that moment, I had like this heartbreaking, traumatic experience because I'd spent almost two years pouring my life into this book. And um, in a matter of minutes, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to sign that statement anymore. So I sent an email back and I said, I know what... I know what you guys want me to say here. I just can't anymore be inauthentic. I don't believe that the Bible condemns same-sex relationships in the way that you do, um, and I can't sign the statement. And so um, I got an email back, and they said they were canceling my book deal. And I've been in conversations with a reporter from Time Magazine about this whole controversy, and she decided that she was going to write an article about me losing my book deal because of my LGBT stance. And she was going to publish the article a week from now. 
And that week was supposed to give me time to talk to friends and family about my sexuality and kind of have the coming out journey. Um, but the Saturday before the week started, um, I was sitting with some friends and I looked down at my phone and all of a sudden I had about 120 text messages and 300 Facebook messages. And I opened them up and they had links to an article in Time Magazine whose headline read, Young Evangelical Author Loses Book Deal After Coming Out. And a a week early, um, this article published and identified me as queer for the first time. And all my friends, family, Bible college people, all found out through a Time Magazine article uh, that I was queer. Um, And I remember I ran and called my mom and was like, you're going to go on the internet and you're going to read this article and I want you to know what it means. Um, And it was a pretty crazy experience. Um, I was outed, basically, in Time Magazine without having the time to actually come out. Um, And in some ways I'm really grateful for it because it was like ripping the band-aid off so I didn't have to have many difficult conversations because the article Mm -hmm. did all the work for me. Um, But it was also pretty crazy to have your sexuality blasted uh, yeah. internationally. It ended up getting picked up by 20 international news outlets, which I have no clue why anybody was interested in my little story about uh, losing a book deal. But around the world, there were headlines that then started saying, gay evangelical loses book deal. And yeah, that set me on this journey of then being able to be open and out and also still hold on to the label evangelicalism and I began a nonprofit soon after that um, nomad partnerships which works with conservative evangelicals and the LGBT community to kind of build bridges and try to create progress oh, that's awesome uh, and so yeah that's that's the whole journey basically so that is phenomenal um, yeah I remember reading that that Time Magazine article, and I already obviously I already knew who you were and, and things before that, but um, yeah, I didn't know actually at the time that that was how you were outed. I you know I, I think I assumed that you were already out, um, but um, wow, that's um, yeah. that's pretty um, <laughs> that's pretty intense. Yeah, um, yeah. never thought that be part of my story, but yeah. Oh well, yeah, it's a contrast because um, you know Vicky Beeching. You'll, you'll know Vicky Beeching. Sure. She um, she kind of she, her her coming out was very different. It was she kind of came out to her family and then talked to a reporter after she already came out to her family, and it was all quite controlled and quite you know um, intentional. And yeah, she had a lot of control over how how that happened, um, which is you know. Um, complete contrast to you. <laughs> um, um, so, um, I mean, that that takes a lot of courage for to go through that. I mean, that's. Um, and I know that in many ways it was probably easier, but as well, it's quite uncomfortable because they kind of pulled the <laughs> they kind of pulled the rabbit out from under you, kind of without you know without telling you. Um, but um, yeah. Um, wow, that's um, yeah. so. What's so? What do you? What's your kind of what do you believe inclusive church really is? And I'm not just talking about sexuality, but in you know, in all kinds of things, because obviously there's lots of things that people disagree on in theologically, you know, including yeah. like the role of women and you know um, other things. Um, and what's your kind of perspective on inclusive church? Right. Um, one thing that I get in trouble a lot for is 
I am not a huge fan of LGBT churches. Um, so what I would call like rainbow flag churches in the yeah. sense that, um, one, I really do understand why they need to exist. So I've here in Denver, I've been um, very good friends with the local metropolitan community church pastor. And I understand why for so many people, especially from a different generation of LGBT people, it's really important to have a LGBT kind of exclusive church to go to, to find healing and reclaim faith. So I get that. But for me, the vision of inclusivity has always been beyond that, that we would not have to be siloed into our own churches. Absolutely. But that we would be in the midst of every yes, other church. Absolutely, uh, yeah. That's, yeah, I'm totally with yeah. you on that. Yeah, I mean, I've always, because I, I, I personally, I believe the same as you do, that, you know, inclusive church has to be, Everyone like together, you know, like um, whether you just you can disagree and and agree on theology of things, but you all kind of coexist together and you love each other and you serve yeah. your community and you serve one another, and right. you don't let your differences divide you, you know. Yeah, um, and I, I talk about that in Nomad in two different places. There's a chapter called Other and a chapter called Eucharist because I really. I find the ritual, the Christian ritual of the Eucharist to be what I consider the great equalizer. It was always meant to be the place where once the priest or pastor announces, blessed are they who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The implication there, first of all, is that all are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then you come to this table, and at this table, all of our identities fall back and we stand only as the bride or body of Christ at this table. And so I think that image of, this is why Paul writes, in Christ there is not a Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all are one. That becomes actualized at the Eucharist table. And I think when we can embody the spirit of Eucharist that says, Christ is in you, and Christ is in me, and we see the face of God in everyone, even with those whom we disagree with the most. That really fundamentally changes the way you live in the world, and it changes the way the church looks. Um, and so I'm a big fan of, in the United States at least, there's a huge kind of revival of interest in liturgy, because a lot of people are rediscovering the richness and meaning and power of these subversive rituals like the Eucharist that says, Every other part of your life is siloed and segregated. Here we come as one, one body, mm. one blood, one family. Um, and there's something really powerful about that. And that's the image of what the church should be, I think. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, my church, we have, you know, we have, we have gay couples in our church and with, with, with children and, and um, you know, they don't feel excluded at all. They're completely welcome. They can serve. You know, they can you know get involved completely and be part of our. You know, and there's people in my church who who are have a more traditional theology around LGBT you know, theology, but 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 it doesn't make any difference. We all kind of coexist together and we serve and love each other and and everyone gets on. You know, and it's there's no there's no issue. There's no judgment. There's no like I've got a tell you the truth in love, whatever kind of thing, you know, which some people do. Um, it's just genuine kind of community together. And, and that, to me, is what church should, should be, you know. Right. Um, and you and could... I think... Sorry. No, no, you go ahead. I, go ahead. I think it just requires a degree... Uh, this is something... Else. Like, this is 
these are the basic lessons of Nomad is there's this need for humility. Um, in Nomad, I talk about C.S. Lewis. He has a poem called The Footnote to All Prayer, where he talks about how every word we speak about God falls short. Everything, he says, is an unskillfully aimed arrow that God and his magnetic mercy needs to redirect um, and translate because it's all just limping metaphors. And I think once we, all of us, both liberals and conservatives, come together and say everything we speak about God, everything we speak about ethics, everything we speak about anything is just our best attempt to understand. It's our best attempt to speak through our lens. Um, then you be able, then you're able to look at others and say they're doing their best, and we might disagree, but that is the best they can do right now. And all of our words about God and all of our theology fall short. Um, and I just mm. that is my like deepest yearning is for that kind of epistemological humility to be found once again in Christianity, and we all become truly. This is going to sound so cheesy, but become truly nomads, where we're wandering, searching for God, not the people who have God in a box, and if you don't agree with us, you're wrong. Yeah. And I think all of us can get to that, conservatives and progressives. Like, it fits with all of us. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I just keep finding myself agreeing with you. It's, um, I, 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 I dream of that. It's like, for me, it's, you know, the church is, it's, God is bigger than, because it's almost kind of like, I mean, I didn't, I started out in a more more traditional kind of, place growing up in traditional church you know but then i had some things happen to me which almost forced me to, to rethink my view of god because the god I, the view of god i had wasn't big enough anymore you know yeah. um and you know and i read velvet elvis and that kind of um i, I found you know i suddenly found like oh right okay <laughs> I can, yeah. I can actually. This God is. This is a God I can kind of get on board with, you know. And right. God, but, but look, through that, I kind of discovered that for me, that God is bigger. It's bigger than just, you know, the the, the Christian faith in a sense. He's bigger than our. He's almost bigger. He's bigger than the church. He's bigger than our concepts of Him, or our understandings yeah. of Him, you know. And there's depths yeah. and there's mystery and there's and you can see Him in all different parts of creation and all you know and um yeah. if you just look for him you know and um but we just don't have that sense of like wonder and that sense of yeah. awe and that sense of like how a, a genuinely big god is and we can even when we say oh god is so big he's like he's so awesome you know like we st it still feels like sometimes that for some people it's he's big but he's confined to to our little group you yeah. know yeah. Um, and that was that was if so I can diss on one group of people um, <laughs> when I was a Calvinist um, that's a lot of the language that's used is the, the greatness of God the glory of God the bigness of God and then except then they turn around and they can give you a list of all of the attributes of God and they can tell you this is exactly by definition what God is and when you I think just reading what Jesus and Paul and Peter write about God. Uh, in God, we live and move and have our being. Christ is in us, the hope of glory, and all things are held together in Christ. You start seeing this bigger picture. Like, it cannot, God can't just be a person. God has to be something more. And for me right now, I'm actually, I'm working on a new book on Celtic spirituality. I'll be writing it while I'm in the UK. Um, 
And I think the Celts, or Celtic Christians, really got something about God being uh, pervasive and permeating all the pores of creation. God is in all things. And for a lot of Christians, that makes us really afraid when you hear someone say that. Mm. But that shouldn't make us be afraid because if we know our universe is big and expanding, our God has to at least be as big and as expansive as our universe. And to get there takes a lot. I mean, it takes something blowing up your conception of God, like both you and I had. But once you're there, I mean, it truly is a life of wonder when I can find God everywhere. I can find God in all people, in all things. Like that's, to me, this version of spirituality is so much more nourishing and fun than uh, any yeah. other version I've had. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, so, on a, on a practical basis, there'll be people like listening to this who maybe are, you know, allies like me and in Christian community, but want to want want to help build a more inclusive church, you know, like the one we talked about. And so, what what kind of what practically what little steps do you think people can can take who who want to help do that, but are not sure what they can do? Right. I think it's hard, uh, and this often I get pushed back from my LGBT brothers and sisters, and I understand why, but. I think the key is to building inclusive churches. Again, not siloing in our own churches for too long. I think some of us need that for some time, but to stay there, I think, does great injustice to the church. I think Christ's call to us as LGBT Christians is to actually go back and enter into the non-inclusive churches. And the reason I say that is because I, I, in all of my work that I've done, I've worked with focus on the family and the Southern Baptist Convention and the Mormon Church here in the United States. And the thing that changes hearts and minds is when people gain what I call empathic understanding. When they're Mm. able to see me sitting across the table as a human, they're able to see my life and know that I'm a Christian because I bear good fruit. Uh, And so that messes with their theological paradigm because they say, my theology says you cannot exist and yet here you sit before me as somebody who proclaims Christ as Lord and are living in an LGBT relationship. I think when LGBT Christians can go back to conservative churches and stand in the midst of them, and it's a sacrifice and it's hard and there's going to be pain, but we stand there as faithful followers of Christ and openly LGBT people, you will begin to transform that church because they will see your faithfulness and it will contradict their worldview. And I always say, when your theology and your worldview clash, your worldview wins. Reality wins. Um, If your theology is incongruent with what you're experiencing in the real world, there's something wrong with your theology. Yeah, Um, I agree with that. And I think for allies, um, non-LGBT people that are LGBT-affirming, It is finding those LGBT people in your church communities and providing them the support and safety so that as, I mean, I here in Denver, Colorado, I go to a number of different conservative churches and I need people supporting me because sometimes I do get those nasty conversations at the coffee shop with my conservative Christian friends who say that I'm an abomination. I need the allied support, but... Mm. 
I really think it is inserting ourselves back into these communities and shining the light that we have and allowing people to see us as we are. Um, that is what breaks down stereotypes. That's what changes the fiber of theology and the church and the whole mm. thing. Mm. So, Yeah, to incarnate, basically, you know. Um, right. And actually, I mean, it's true because I, I know that um, the gay couple now the couple that come to our church and bring their bring their um, their son as well and that I think that's changed that softened perspectives of a few people I've seen it I've seen that because um, it just just by being there and um, it, it just it, it makes a difference you know and having and myself having having friends who are LGBT. Um, some are Christian, some aren't, and uh, that 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 changes your perspective um, definitely. And uh, I mean, my theology had already kind of changed before I had any LGBT friends, but it yeah. does. But I think it does make a difference. And I mean, I I um, one of the things that I do with a friend from my church is there's a there's a local LGBT group which meets up for breakfast every couple of weeks, every month. And sure. me and a friend from church, we go, we just go and meet them. We go and hang out and have breakfast with them and um, just to build bridges, you know, just to kind of yeah. say, you know, God doesn't hate you, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, but I, when I've been there, I've I've met trans, I've met some transgender people. You know, I didn't, I'd never met any transgender people. And, and you know, in the first time, I, the first couple of times, I, I was uncomfortable. But, yeah, but when you build relationships with them, Build friendships. Yeah. It just changes. It changes it completely, and um, so that's great advice, I think. Yeah, and I don't know anyone, any person's theology who's ever changed, and I, I literally believe this is true. I don't know anyone who's changed their view on LGBT issues completely without knowing LGBT people. I think it's, and I again, in Nomad, I really emphasize the, the power of experience and the authority of experience. We've lost that in Christianity today because we're taught that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things. But it's our experience that shapes our worldview. It's our experience that changes our mind and heart on every other issue. And so unless straight folk know LGBT people, I think it's almost hopeless. Uh, your theology can't change just by reading a book about it, I think. Um, and like you said, I, your theology began to change beforehand. But I feel like it's those relationships that bring you over the edge, that bring us over the edge and say, yeah. now I know what a gay Christian looks like and it's real, it's authentic. Absolutely, yeah. So um, so just, um, so the, the book that you mentioned, have you, have you um, I think I've heard that's, that's being published soon, is that correct? The Nomad book? Right, it's being released in the UK first um, in two days, May 26th. Um, by Darton Longman and Todd, a great UK publisher. Um, and so we're going to, it'll be in the UK and Europe, um, and I'll be coming over in a week and a half and spending about 15 days traveling across England, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, um, touring with the book. And so I'm really excited to share it with the UK first, and then in a few months, Lord willing, it'll be released here in the United States. But yeah. yeah. Cool. That's that's a good end to the story. That story actually, because obviously not you know, having the contract kind of taken away, um, yeah. it's awesome to be able to get the book published. You know, 
Um, yeah. Um, when you come to the UK, that's awesome. Um, I hope you like it. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. I've never been, and it's uh, it's a pilgrimage for me, as I said kind of earlier. And um, I've always felt a deep connection to my Scottish roots, but nobody in my family for generations have been back to Scotland, and so I'm really it's, there's a real spiritual significance to coming to the UK, and I'm really glad things have panned out the way they have, and it's being released there first. There's just something That's, beautiful about that. That is really awesome. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm I'm looking forward to reading it. I can't wait to read it. Um, um, so, okay, just as we kind of bring this to a close, although we could probably talk for hours probably about this. Um, um, what from kind of from your own experience and what you've learned? You know, there's there's a lot of people out there who are either allies or, or LGBT. Um, Christians and looking for hope feeling excluded feeling outside Um, what word of hope would you want to say to them I think the biggest I think the biggest hope is that the Spirit of God, I believe this so firmly. I really believe this. Uh, after seeing it and working in this space for two and a half years now, the Spirit of God is doing something that is transforming the hearts and minds of humanity, I believe. This is happening on every continent. I mean, I'm talking to people in Malawi and Uganda, and I'm talking to people in India. Uh, something is happening where, not only on LGBT issues, but on interfaith issues and on all these places where we have divisions there's a shift in consciousness that's happening and humanity is becoming I really believe less afraid and I think America right now um, is in an interesting place Um, I'm sure you guys are watching Donald Trump and uh, Hmm, uh, Black Lives Matter and all all the things that are happening these uprisings where you've got these very conservative people supporting Donald Trump and his hatred and then you have like this reawakening to the problem of racism in America and the problem of LGBT uh, discrimination in America. And this is happening all around the world. I think all of these are symptoms and signs that we are expanding and that the church is changing and the world is changing. And just 20 years ago in the United States, I could have been thrown in jail for 20 years for being caught kissing another man Mm. and things have changed so rapidly and so in the midst of our struggle in the midst of our pain it's hard to have that perspective but and it's been said many times before it really does get better and it really is getting better and if you just hold on and find the people that will support you here and now I think that within a decade we're going to see a radically different world uh, where our situation and our love will be so much more uh, normalized. And I don't know that I like that word normalized, but accepted into Mm. equal standing with the rest of relationships and personhood and culture. So that's, it's a little cliche. And like, I struggle with saying it sometimes because I know what it feels like to be the LGBT person on the other end, sitting in the darkness. But that truly has been my experience. That uh, there is light on the other side, and I still get hate mail, and I still get 
just a week ago, I was walking down the street here in Denver, holding hands with my boyfriend, and we got yelled, gay slurs at. Like, that still happens. But the world is getting better, and, like, I, there's a tangible sense that stuff is changing and that God is up to something. And so that's where my hope lies. Awesome. That's really awesome. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for, for coming on today. It's been really great talking to you. Yeah. Um, Likewise, it's such an honor to be able to finally talk to you. Like I said <laughs> earlier, I've been following the podcast for a while, so it's been good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, great. And we'll talk to you again, definitely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, thank you, Brian. Um, okay, everyone. Well, that was uh, Brandon Robertson, and um, I hope, you, hope you've been inspired as much as me. And um, take care, and we'll talk soon.